Thanks. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be back. It's great to have survived the wilderness barely uh, last weekend. Uh, if you know, you know. If you don't know, you don't know. Um, it's great to be back. And uh, I'm going to jump in. This is a, a really important text. It's a very important kind of pivot in the uh, Gospel of Mark that we've been uh, walking through. And so we're going to jump right back in. Tim did a great job last week really showing us how Jesus is just very gradually unveiling who he is throughout the Gospel of Mark. And that the people that actually get to see who he is are the most like unexpected people. And this week we get to see Jesus show his power. Show what he's made of more than um, and almost anywhere else in the book until the end. And so we get to see this uh, text. We go verse by verse because it's a big chunk. So we just got to take it like in little donut hole type sizes, okay? Alright, so verse, uh, verse 14 of chapter 9 in Mark. And let's read. And when they came to the disciples, this is them coming back down from the Mount of Transfiguration, right? They saw a great crowd around the rest of the disciples. Because remember, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus. And scribes are arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed. And they ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked him, uh, and, and Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? That's a good question for us today. It's just like Jesus looking at us and like, what, what are you guys arguing about? Like, just cut it up, right? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid, stiff. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the child to me. All right, there's a lot happening in this text, and we don't have a lot of time unless you want me to preach for a couple hours, all right? So we're going to get, get moving through this text. But what I love right off the bat in this text, and I love that Jesus just finished literally being in all of his glory with his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. And rather than stay there, because that would have been sweet, right? You with me on that? Like if we were there, that would have been nice. Just stay there with Jesus in his full glory, a little bit of Elijah, a little bit of Moses sprinkled in. That would have been a nice place to stay. But Jesus doesn't stay there. He comes all the way back down the mountain into the mess and brokenness of real people. And I love that. Right away, you got to notice that. This is like the incarnation. The idea that God did not stay far away or distant from you and I, from our suffering, from our pain, but actually entered in. That God became in flesh, clothed himself, so that he could come down, be like you and I, to do what you and I cannot do. And this is a picture of the incarnation in Jesus actually leaving his glory at the top of the mount, the mount, mount Hebron, and actually coming down into the brokenness, into the physical and emotional mess of real people's lives. And what we get to see is that it is a mess. There's some kind of invisible yet real power over this little boy. This boy is sick. We're not told a lot of details as to what is happening, what the diagnosis is. But I know for us, when we look at this, we see that Mark is pointing us to some kind of spiritual oppression. Now you look at it and be like, well, it's epilepsy, obviously. We're so smart now. Science. Like we've come so far, we know that it's just epilepsy. But we have to be careful here because when we run into texts like this that seem to pull the curtain back on the supernatural or the spiritual or the demonic, we have to be very careful not to see texts like this and just kind of sit in our post-enlightenment, materialist, western bias and say, come on, 
Come on, we've gone, we've come so far past this. We know way better now. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. That we would look back on previous generations and say, come on, we're way smarter now. We know so much more. After all, we're progressive, right? We're a progressive culture. We're about innovation and movement forward. We know so much more about these kinds of things, psychologically and emotionally and mentally. This is just epilepsy. But in the Hebrew worldview, they didn't have the baggage that you and I do with our Western either or. It's like it's either epilepsy, and there needs to be a doctor to come and diagnose it, or there's some kind of Stephen King exorcist type stuff happening, and I don't know what it is. Right? That's immediately where our head goes. It's either or. But in the Hebrew worldview, in the Hebrew mind, there was not those polar kind of binary way of thinking. There was so much more overlap between the different components that make up the human person in their mind. Between the spiritual and, and the emotional and the mental and, and the physical dimensions of personhood. They all just kind of blend together. So I know you and I will struggle to read this because this is an ancient Eastern text with very different values at the core. You and I are coming to this with a post-enlightenment, very hyper-scientific, innovative, psychologically biased perspective. So I just tell you that to park your biases for a moment and maybe entertain the question, could Jesus know more about true reality than you and I do? Because Jesus doesn't dismiss this. The most famous, popular, well-celebrated figure of history doesn't just go, come on guys, this is not a demon, it's epilepsy. Jesus leans in and gives us something way more coherent in his understanding of this. Now, in saying that, let me just say that our relationship with the supernatural in our Western culture is very strange today. Because although we pride ourselves as being some kind of a post-enlightenment, hyper-scientific culture where the spiritual and supernatural were just old age taboos of ancients, the most recent poll that I saw in our West, in North America, showed that 70% of people walking around in your lives today believe in Satan and demons. Now there's a conflict there because it's like, well, science, those aren't real. But I feel like maybe science doesn't get at everything. And I don't know, I felt creepy one time and I don't know what that was, right? Like, so we're confused, we're lost. We're like, we're lost in these two kind of weird polars. We don't really know what to do with the supernatural. 50% of people polled said that they actually believe in ghosts. Like, you know, Uncle Tom talking to me in my sleep or whatever, right? Leading me down for crackers in the middle of the night or whoever, right? But the paranormal, the supernatural, if you go to any reality TV show, they're everywhere. Walking around with their weird cameras being like, what was that, Uncle Tom? Say it again. And then they pull out their phones and use their wavelength calculators and you're like, that was a ghost, right? So, so we're, we're simultaneously obsessed with this stuff, yet have a worldview that has no placeholder for it. So we're, we're, we're caught in a very confused place as a culture, which kind of describes our culture today, period, to be honest. If you just read the teleprompter, like, what, who are we? Nobody knows. What are we doing here? Nobody knows. Where are we going? Nobody knows. Right, so we're just kind of locked in this confusing place, and Jesus enters right into it, praise God, and gives us a better answer, a better way. So I don't know where you are on that spectrum. Some of you might think that that's nonsense. It's some pre-modern belief that needs to just be left in the past because science. Some of us are still stuck like believing that the devil is like wearing red Lululemon tights, smoking bad cigarettes, 
listening to ACDC, waiting to stab us with his thing, right? Like, but but that's, that might be some of you. That's also not a biblical view of this at all. Or some of you just thinks that every minor inconvenience in your life is from the devil. <laughs> right? So, oh, that bleach ruined my favorite t-shirt. I'm going to cast you out in the name of Jesus, baby. <laughs> Wherever you are, let's abandon all three of those and just see what Jesus does with these kinds of things. Because none of those positions are biblical in how it talks about the demonic, how it talks about the supernatural, how it talks about spiritual
bleach ruined my favorite t-shirt. I'm going to cast you out in the name of Jesus, baby. <laughs> Wherever you are, let's abandon all three of those and just see what Jesus does with these kinds of things. Because none of those positions are biblical in how it talks about the demonic, how it talks about the supernatural, how it talks about spiritual... Jesus continuously calls us into the truth. And that's weird in a culture that doesn't believe there is absolute truth. You with me on that? It's amazing that postmodern culture is built on the building blocks that the truth cannot be known. And the enemy loves that because it's the truth that will set you free, John 8, Jesus teaches. And he's talking specifically about the devil. A whole bunch of religious people are there thinking that they got the corner lot on truth and Jesus shows up and he says, no, no, you sound like your dad. You sound like your father. The devil, because he's the father of lies. All lies start with him, and you sound like him. You don't sound like the truth. That's a crazy passage, because he's calling out the religious establishment of the day. But more importantly, what he's doing in that text is that he's hyperlinking us all the way back to where? We almost go there every Sunday, church. Come on, baby. The garden, let's go. That's it. All the way back to Genesis, right? All the way back to the garden. The DNA of all things. Starts right there in those few chapters. And we're introduced to a figure, the serpent. Which again, I know I'm sorry that Sunday school taught you it was a talking snake. But that is never what Genesis is getting at. Back then, they believe, believe it or not, they knew snakes don't talk. I don't know if you guys are with me on that, all right? They, they, didn't, they didn't expect that. that. That's not a thing, right? But what a serpent was in the ancient context is it was a symbol of power and wisdom. If you remember Egyptian pharaohs, what did they often have on their headdress? A snake. Because it, 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 communicate, it communicated power and authority and wisdom. And so what we see set up in Genesis is an alternative form of wisdom. A false wisdom, a counterfeit wisdom that is set against God. And if you notice, and if you remember the story, this serpent shows up in the garden and doesn't attack human beings, right? Who does he attack? What God said. 
He attacks what God said, and he does it in three ways. He casts doubt on whether what God, what God was saying is true by saying, did God really say not to go and eat of any fruit? Like, that's lame. Like, I can't believe he doesn't want you to enjoy all this beautiful fruit. Recasting God as a killjoy. Recasting God as somebody that is not trustworthy, right? So casting doubt on the nature and character of God and what God said, that he's not trustworthy. He's, not, he's too restrictive, this God thing, he's so restrictive. Live your life, baby. And the second thing he does, he denies what God does actually say by saying, no, 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 he was kidding. He won't actually die. Living a life outside of God's will and definition of right, good, true, and beautiful, you won't actually die. It'll just be kind of like minorly like inconvenient. And the third thing he says is he distorts what God does say. Ah, oh, here's why God doesn't want you to get this. Because he knows you'll be like him. Like you'll have more power. That's why he doesn't want good for you. That's the story of Genesis. And it reveals our core problem that Jesus is picking up here. The core problem behind, behind all things that are broken and wrong is the hiss of the serpent from the garden that says, did God really say? You and I don't sin because we like doing bad things. That's not what sin is in the Bible. It leads to bad things. It leads to bad behaviors. You and I sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. You and I live lives of sin and sinfulness because we believe a lie about where happiness and fulfillment is found. That's the point of Genesis, and that's what Jesus is picking up here. How many areas of your life right now are you hearing a loud, resounding, did God really say? Because there are competing narratives everywhere that'll give you an alternative. Did God really say that about sexuality? Did God really say that about gender? Did God really say that about money? Did God really say that about immigrants and strangers and foreigners? Did God really say that about politics? Did God really say, right? You just keep going down the line. And culture is continuously just pumping out a mill of options of counterfeit wisdom for you and I to live in light of. And that's what Jesus is picking up here. How much of you right now, how many of you in your life are believing lies about what will make you happy and it's in your quiet, sober, honest moments that you realize it's not working? That's our whole culture. It's our entire culture right now. Realizing that the secular, progressive mission we've been on is not actually working. It's actually leaving us far more empty than we thought, far less progressed than we thought. You know that IQ rates are actually going down over the last decade? Yeah, I don't know. It's just because we don't even have to think anymore, right? But like we're, not, we're, we're progressing in some ways, but we are not progressing in all ways. And that's really important to, to see. Uh, Jared Wilson wrote a book called The Gospel According to Satan. Read it a while ago. Um, don't worry, it's not as dark as it sounds. And he points out eight major lies that kind of just float around in our culture. Things like, God just wants you to be happy. You can find a preacher in a church, you can find books, you can find entire churches built around that message. God just wants you to be happy, man. Just, just, just do you. YOLO. You only live once. Just live it up. Do you. Live your truth. Your life is what you make it. God helps those who helps themselves, after all. Right? And then he points out a few more lies, but here's what he says. I'll just quote him. The gospel according to Satan doesn't sound like you think it would. If the devil took over a city, it wouldn't be filled with bars and porn shops and pool halls. Instead, it would be full of well-mannered, tidy pedestrians 
who are all polite and nice and filled churches on Sundays where Christ isn't preached. The devil knows he doesn't need the church of Satan to get you. He just needs something shiny. One famous author said that distraction doesn't come from the devil. Distraction is the devil. And we are the most distracted, anxious, stressed out, unfulfilled culture of modern history. So what is distracting you right now? Like, I'm not, not, not right now. Well, right now, yes. Don't be distracted right now. But, I mean, like, this week, if you look, you're like, what took, like, what did you leak time and energy to that were really just distractions? What is distracting you from life with God? Like, life in God and with God. What are some of the messages that are distorting and denying and doubting, making you doubt who God is and what God does? That's what Jesus is pointing out here. But here's the important part. This text is not actually about Satan and demons. Now I'm going to preach. This text is actually about faith. And you see it as a thread all throughout. Not a struggle with demonic spirits, but a struggle with faith. Now here's where this lands in your lap and mine. Many of us are like, I don't really know what to do with the demonic thing, but I know what it's like to struggle with faith. Amen? I know what it's like to wrestle with this. Wrestle with all the questions and all of the complexities of faith. This is hard. It is a struggle when we're honest. I know some, some circles are just like, have more faith, brother and sister. Yeah. It's like, well, it's, but that's not helpful, right? It's like, no, no, but I'm struggling. I'm wrestling with my faith. I'm struggling through my faith. And that's what this text ultimately is about. And we see two different conversations Jesus has out of this event with this little boy who is clearly struggling. He has a conversation with his disciples about their faith. And then he has a conversation with the desperate father of the little boy about his faith. Now, before we get into that, you got to understand that faith is not a religious term. So don't like fill that with a bu- as a bucket with religious language, okay? Faith just simply means trust. Every single person who has breath in their lungs lives by faith. We have an object of faith, something that we've decided, I'm going to trust this. I'm going to trust this end, this pursuit, this type of lifestyle. I'm going to trust that shiny thing, and I'm going to give my life to it. Because that is what's going to give me worth and value and ultimately justify me. That's the object of faith. Faith is so much more than just believing in something. It's about living in light of something. Are you with me on that? So every person, religious or non, cultural background doesn't matter, religious background does not matter. We all live by faith. We all live in light of something that casts its shadow back onto our life and we've determined to live in light of it and give our life to it. That is faith. So you've got to be careful because so often in culture, faith is just pitted against like reason or logic. It's like faith is just not believing in logic. You're like, oh, cool. That's a convenient way to dismiss all conversations about faith, right? But we've got to be careful because that, that, that's not what faith is biblically. So if you asked yourself and looked at your life right now, I mean, what do you look to to give your life meaning? Like what makes life worth living for you? Every day you get up. What makes life worth living? What do you trust to give you purpose and satisfy you? What is your life actually built on? Because Hebrews 11 says about faith, it says it defines faith as a confidence in what's hoped for, right? So something out there that is going to give me meaning, value, worth, and satisfy me. And Jesus constantly pushes people on this question. What do you want more than anything? Because if you answer that question, guess what you're gonna find? 
you're gonna find the object of your faith underlying the answer to that question. What do you want more than anything and why? Jesus is constantly asking that question, especially of the crowds. When he gets like a big group together, that's when he'll drop these really inconvenient, tough questions, right? Not just be like, sprinkle some Jesus juice on them and be like, oh, live blessed. God just wants you to be happy. He literally waits for the biggest crowd to make the most outstanding, crazy statements because he wants to actually push into the deeper like the, the deeper stuff about faith. He doesn't want just anybody following him. He wants people following him for the right reason because they're desperately coming and moving towards trust in him, right? All right, so if you noticed when we read, and we'll keep going through the text in a sec, but he turns to his disciples and he calls them a faithless generation. It's like, well, that's, that's harsh, Jesus, right? But the problem at the bottom of the hill is that there's this boy and his disciples can't do anything. They're like, we don't, we, we've tried. And all the religious people are there arguing with them, which is what religious people do when needs show up. I don't know if you caught that. Look, over the last two years, we've had a lot of really religious people arguing about things that do not matter while normal people are struggling and broken, amen? So the scribes and the Pharisees are always so good theologically. Let's, let's debate, let's argue about this, let's, let's get into all this stuff. While real ethical, moral brokenness is happening right here and they don't care. Because religious people don't. So Jesus just like ignores those cats because he's like, well, they're not my people. You're not of me. And he talks to his disciples and says, faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you? Which sounds really harsh. But in the Greek, it's actually just Jesus for, when are you going to get this? Like, when are you going to understand this? You've seen me do miracles. You've heard what I've taught. You've heard me literally predict my death and resurrection. When are you going to understand what I'm actually doing here? He's not saying they don't have faith. He's saying that they have an incomplete faith. He's saying that they have a defective faith. And what's really interesting about the disciples here is that it's as soon as they're reminded of their own inability and weakness, their faith fails. Stay with me on that. As soon as they can't do something, their faith fails. Family, so often our faith is strong when everything is going well and is in our control. But it's actually when our comfort and our security and our safety is threatened that we really see where we have placed our faith. And that happens to the disciples right here. Because they're at the end of themselves and they're just like, I don't know. And their faith fails them. Their faith doesn't actually build them up and make them stronger in this moment. It fails them. And we have to understand that tough times and suffering and perseverance, I mean, are actually good things. And I know the Western narrative of myth and progress and success and wealth and happiness tells us the opposite. But it's actually tough times that reveal the true object of your faith. It's actually tough times that reveal, just burns off the dross of your life and shows you what you're actually living for. It's times of weakness that expose what we are actually relying on for strength. And it's a gift. It's a gift. Our faith rarely grows stronger when we're strong. And we see that with the disciples here. It's in the depths of doubt and despair and brokenness and discontentment and failure that we see our faith grow the most. If you get, get time this week and go back through the letter of James. It'll take you about 16 minutes to read. In the New Testament, just right, just right of Mark. Jesus 
half-brother James writes some very, very helpful things about faith. And I actually think this week as I was preparing, I feel like James might have been there that day or at least heard about it after. And he wrote this in James chapter one. Watch this, verse two through six. It'll be up here momentarily. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, my people, when you meet trials of various kinds. Church, if that's not countercultural today, I don't know what it is. Because we live our entire life insulating us, insulating our entire life from, from trials, right? Just bubble wrap ourselves and hope that we just like make it through, right? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, whole, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, this is beautiful, let him ask God. So if you have any questions, any doubts, any things you're working through, ask God who gives generously, it's a generous God, to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's the testing of our faith that produces a stronger faith. That word testing is a beautiful word in Greek. It means proving something to be true through experimentation, right? It's like extensive trials on this thing to prove that it's strong and can actually be marketed, right? We see that with product testing. It's like test these plates that don't break, which by the way, they always break. Anyway, we have some of those un we have some of those unbreakable plates. And I'm just I all, I'm such a contrarian that I'm like, unbreakable, eh? Oh. <clears throat> Kelly comes running down the stairs. What why did you do that? It said it was unbreakable. Clearly not, I'm writing an email, right? But it's the testing of something that proves its strength, proves its ability to hold its, its, its weight, hold water. This word is used of silversmiths and blacksmiths where you'd have ore in a pot, like burning, right? Really hot, heated to a molten, and then dross and impurities would rise to the surface, and then they would scoop the impurities off and discard them, and they would do that over and over and over and over again until when? until the silversmith could see their reflection in the top of the, the pot. That's exactly what God is doing with, with tests. He wants to see more of himself in us. He wants to see a true reflection of who he is in our life, but that doesn't come through skipping through the lilies, smiling, pretending like everything is gonna be okay, but it actually means leaning into some of the tough stuff, leaning into trials, leaning into failure, leaning into humility and weakness and doubt. And what's happened in the West, church, in Christianity today, and again, you can find it all over the place, all over Instagram, all over the most popular, well-followed teachers out there. Faith becomes about avoiding trials. And so we build this thick layer of insulation between us and discomfort or inconvenience of any kind. And then guess what happens? Believe it or not, the second a doubt comes, or a dry season comes, or a minor trial comes, the faith that we thought we had comes completely crashing down. Why? Because it exposes the weak foundation that we built it on in the first place. And it is true that God wants your best, but not on your terms, it's on his. Over and over in scripture, 2 Corinthians 13, five is, is one. Put yourselves to the test to see whether you are in the faith or not. Like the only thing you have to do to become a Christian in our culture is just say that you are one. 
Just, oh, oh, cool, okay. Like, we don't even, t- we don't even test ourselves, let alone each other. On is there fruit? Is there fruit of the Spirit in your life? Is there genuine confession? Are you hating sin more and loving the Lord more? Like, like, is there any fruit whatsoever, any proof that you actually have genuine faith or not? That's a question for you. It's a question for you to deal with and work through. But some of you have faith built on personal comfort and ease and God's favor and living hashtag blessed and going to heaven when you die or just being forgiven of all the naughty things you've done. But hear me, church, a faith that is built on anything other than a committed trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ will not survive. It will not last. It will not last personal trial. It will not last your own failure. True faith is lived on God's terms and in light of who God is. And Jesus is lovingly reminding his disciples of this. That's the first thing about faith. The second thing, we see it in this conversation with the desperate father. Watch this, verse 20 through 27. So they brought the boy to him, to Jesus. And when the spirit saw Jesus, all right, this is wild. Immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? Now listen, I love Jesus' posture. You gotta pay attention to this. Don't just read the red letters. I love his posture. The little boy that the father's just desperately bringing, like nothing's worked. He's bringing his little boy. As a dad, I'm like, man, bringing my little son to Jesus. And then the boy has an episode. And to Jesus, I'm like, rush and fix him, Jesus. Jesus stands calmly, turns to the father, because this is more about the father's trust and desperation than it is about Jesus' ability to heal this little boy. And he turns to the father and he says, how long has this been happening to him? As a dad, I'm like, that doesn't matter. Right? Like, I'm like, it's happening right now. Right? Like, like do, do something, you know? So I, I just love passages like this, and you can tell it's exciting to me. Okay. How long has this been happening to him? And he said, well, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water trying to destroy him. Something's happening here. Like, this little boy, I don't know if this little boy had, like, a wicked call or anointing on his life or what, but the enemy was after this little boy. Not just like epileptic seizures, but throwing him into fire and throwing him into water, trying to kill this child. And he says, but if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, love it. That's Jesus for, come on, son. All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out. That's like, like just desper- desperation and said, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, because it's him, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing the boy terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he must be dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. These are these texts where you like read that and you're like, either that's not true or Jesus is who he says he is and I really wanted to be there that day, right? But if you notice, the father says, if you can. Now, what's really interesting about this doesn't come through in English so much. It's not that he's doubting whether Jesus is willing. 
He knows Jesus is willing. But he is doubting whether Jesus actually can do anything with what he's going through. Family, are some of you there right now? In a place of hopelessness where you begin to doubt whether God can actually do anything about your situation. About that thing that nobody else knows about. About those thoughts that continue to torment you. About those things from your past. About those things about your present. The things that just cripple you and overwhelm you day to day. Because Jesus' answer is so compassionate. And he says, if I can. And he see, he, he's like, that's the linchpin. He's like, oh, okay, here we go. I got you. This is it. This is a trust exercise. This is about faith. And then he says, all things are possible for those who believe. This is by far, there's a lot of them in our Western thing that we've created called Christianity. But this is one of the most misused and abused verses of all scripture. It's been hijacked by the power of positive thinking crew, the just believe it and you can achieve it crew, the speak it into existence, manifest it. If I hear one more person say that they manifested something, I am gonna, I'm gonna pray for them. You see that? That was, that was the Holy Spirit sanctifying me in the middle of a sentence. I manifested it. Man, you can barely manifest to remember to brush your teeth. You didn't manifest all the great things that came to you in your life. That drives me nutty. All right. This has been hijacked for that, but here, here's it. That's not this. That's not this, church. That's not what is happening here. This is not a verse about God doing anything for you if you believe it enough. <laughs> it's about God doing anything through you when you trust him enough. And that makes all the difference because that's what the father needs to see. That's the power he needs to experience. That's the desperation and the trust that he's coming with to Jesus about his son. And the father's response by far is one of the most profound in all of the New Testament. I believe period. <laughs> no, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. The key here is so often we put like faith and doubt at like two separate, they can't coexist, right? Or belief and unbelief, just believe more and you can achieve more, whatever it is, you just say things, right? But here he actually trusts Jesus with what? his unbelief. He actually brings, not just his belief, like, oh, look at me, Jesus, I'm, I trust you. Do what, do what you do. He's like, no, no, but, but, I, but I'm also struggling. I do trust you. I'm there, but I'm not quite there yet. I got questions. I got things I'm working through. I got, I got doubts. I got things that I'm working through, but I, but I can't deny that I know you. Anybody there? Like, I can't deny that you've done something in me. I can't deny that I'm a different person. I, I cannot deny that I'm not just like in adoration of you and magnetically drawn to you, but I still have questions. Church, Reach Montreal will always be a place where we encourage healthy, honest interaction with questions and skepticism. We gotta be careful not to make certainty an idol in our faith. As if faith is about having everything locked down and nailed down, and we have all the right theology and doctrine, we have everything nailed down, anyone who just steps out of it, anathema, right? You must not be a real believer if you're doubting, brother. That's not the Christian faith. 
This father's not saying, I won't believe you until all my questions are answered. (laughs) He's saying, I believe you through the process of getting all my questions answered. You know why certain, like here's the thing. Certainty is not possible, period. Are you with me on that? Like, like, take Christian thinking out of it. Evolutionary biologists, you know, we came from this larva in the mud that became this, and now look at us, we're doing this, okay? The amount of faith and trust that you have to have in that process, you cannot have certainty about that process. Why? Because you have a three and a half pound brain, and you're finite, and you're not all-knowing and not all-powerful. So when we're actually honest about our intellectual doubts and skepticisms and questions, we're all left at a position where we have to make faith decisions based on what, we're going, what story we're going to believe about life and then what we're going to live in light of. Are you with me on that? That's just being intellectually honest. And too often we see faith pitted against doubt or we see certainty pitted against skepticism or, or religion versus science. And this is just like exacerbated and like lit on fire by, by atheist voices like Richard Dawkins who wrote the, uh, the God Delusion, he said that faith is like a mental illness. A quote, a great cop-out, the excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. And all the Christians in the world said, what? Especially Christians who work in fields of evidence <laughs> and evaluation and science. Like you're, I'm just so perplexed by things like that. And then those get retweeted and become the pop culture message about faith. Is that science is about thinking, evidence, reason, and facts, whereas faith is about ignoring evidence, silliness, believing fairy tales, and denying scientific proof. Case closed. Then they put it on CNN and then we all believe it. It's always like the debate on CNN where you have like, I'm Dr. Herbert Gertenschmauser, and I have 17 PhDs. I'm representing the atheist part of this debate, and we're debating, and then it goes to the next person. He's like, I'm Hank. <laughs> T-shirts half ripped off, just came from wrestling crocodiles in the Florida swamps. He's like, I, I believe Jesus. Like, looks like a very even debate. <laughs> Just, just be aware, okay? This is how things are pitched to us. And then we just like gobble up. We're like, I guess that's it. No Christian worth their salt believes that faith is contrary to reason, logic, thinking, questions, any of that. And biblically, faith is actually not even contrasted with doubt. So like it's not even biblical to even like lean into that. Faith is actually contrasted with fear, So just have a little bit more faith or don't doubt or that's actually not helpful as a Christian position on faith. I don't think it's emotionally, spiritually or intellectually honest to our actual experience with the omniscient, omnipotent God who can't fit in our three and a half pound brain. Anybody with me? So we need to create more space, church, to encourage deconstruction and reconstruction of our faith. Take all the Lego blocks of our faith and just continue to Take it down and rebuild it. Take it down and rebuild it. We need to create more space for that. So the question that hangs here is, can you trust Jesus and have doubts at the same time? And the church said, (laughs) no, because of the swamp guy. (laughs) Yes, of course you can, because we see that exact tension here with the Father, right? Last week we saw Jesus, full of his glory, coming down the mountain of transfiguration, And the disciples, okay, I just, I love this. The disciples are coming down from seeing Jesus full of his glory and they're already going, 
what did he mean about the resurrection, do you think? <laughs> right? Like, they're already questioning, and they just saw him in his full glory at the top of the mountain. It's everywhere. So, of course, these are attention. These are attention that just hang together. A.J. Swoboda wrote a book about deconstruct, de- deconstructing our faith, and he says this. He sums it up, and then we'll wrap up. Christian spirituality isn't solely about one's capacity to restate right, true, and accurate beliefs. Some of you need to hear that. Christian faith is total trust, submission, and faith in Jesus reflected in a whole person pursuit to know the one that's being trusted. True faith leads us to want true beliefs. If we trust God, we'll want to know who God is and what God says. Belief and trust are not mutually exclusive. Christian faith is about both, trusting and rightly believing. None are saved by grace through right beliefs. Good works or good beliefs don't save, but they do reveal and reflect our trust. It's very liberating for some of us, some of our more skeptical brains as we're working through our faith. So the Father gives us a good playbook here for how to wrestle with this stuff by saying, I believe, but I still have some questions. I have doubts, I I have worries, I have fears, but I still trust you. I'm still moving towards you, but I don't know exactly where we're going. I don't understand all about you and what you're doing, but I do believe that you're bigger than what I can see. All of this is I believe, but help my unbelief. Uh, The great pastor and thinker D.L. Moody said that there's three types of, of faith, that there's a struggling faith, like somebody that's in deep water desperately trying to swim. And there's a clinging faith, like somebody hanging onto the side of the boat in that same storm. And then there's resting faith, like somebody safely in the boat, reaching out, helping other people to get in. So some of you might be where this dad was with struggling faith. And if that's you, continue to work through your questions. Lean into that. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He's a big boy. He can answer all of them. But you may not get all of them answered. And that's the exercise of faith here. It's desperation and weakness and humility that actually grows our faith, not intellectual certainty. So finally, the last two verses, we see Jesus operate in this amazing power and free this child. And he turns back to his disciples, watch, And when he had entered the house, they went for dinner, and his disciples asked him privately. So often this would happen, right? Jesus would do something in public, and then they'd go have like a little Bible study. It's pretty cool. And he'd go and have dinner, and his disciples asked him privately, why could we not do that? I love that. It's just like, why couldn't we do what you just did? It's like, because you're not Jesus, fool. That's not what he said. But why weren't we not able to cast it out to free that little boy? And he said to them, because this kind cannot be driven out by anything but holy water and exorcism. Oh, sorry. Uh, but prayer. This kind can only be driven out by prayer. Not what I was expecting. I was thinking full on exorcism of Emily Rose, right? Blair Witch Project, like, let's get some holy water, let's, let's get the crucifixes, let's get the robes, and let's go to war, baby. That's not what Jesus says. He says that this kind of brokenness, this kind of oppression, this kind of weight cannot be released by anything but prayer. 
Now, if you remember back in chapter seven, Jesus already gave his disciples power over demons. I don't know if you guys remember that part, right? Like you guys go, you can do this. That's why they're confused because they're like, wait, but we already did this once. Why can't we do it this time? We couldn't free this boy. Why, Why can't we do this? Why couldn't we? And what I love is that Jesus doesn't even pray before he does it. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't stop and say, let's say grace before I exercise this demon. You know, he doesn't even stop and pray before he does it. Which makes us think that this isn't about stopping and legalistically praying before every event in our life. What Jesus is getting at though, is that the posture of a prayer life is one of desperation. It's one of helplessness. It's one of deep reliance upon God. And Jesus lived that. And so he lives a life of prayer, not just life of praying sometimes. And if we're honest, that's most of us, right? It's like, I guess, we, I guess we'll just pray about this now. Like, we'll stop and we'll pray a few prayers. We gotta understand that prayer, prayers themselves are just as important as the posture of prayer. Prayer is how we demonstrate our neediness and our powerlessness. And notice that the disciples ask why we weren't able to do it. And that's the key. Well, it's like, because you can't do anything. You're missing it. You're missing the point. You can't do it without my power. You can't do it. If you're going to rely on yourself and your power and your skills and your talents and your business acumen and your personality and your charisma, you're not going to actually be able to operate in the power that I'm calling you to. So there's a weakness, there's a humility, there's a a helplessness that, that is like the precondition for a prayer life. Prayer just says we can't do this and we need you, God. Prayer is practiced dependence. It's practiced weakness. It's practiced humility. And so much of our daily life, when we're honest, is just about controlling things with our abilities, our capabilities, our skills, our money, our words. Like we just go through our daily life controlling it with all the skills and talents and stuff that we have. But right here, where the disciples show a defective faith and an insufficient prayer life, this desperate dad shows genuine faith and a humble prayer. And that's the contrast, that the dad's prayer is full of desperation. It's full of dependence. It's full of trust in Jesus's power. Dallas Willard said about prayer, don't seek to develop a prayer life. Seek a praying life. A prayer life is a segmented time for prayer. You'll end up feeling guilty that you don't spend more time in prayer. Anyone? Yeah, of course. Eventually, you'll feel defeated and you'll just give up and stop praying. But a praying life is a life that is saturated with prayerfulness. You end up seeking to do all that you do with the Lord. So, how do we resist lies? By spending our lives in prayer. Prayer isn't about praying. Prayer is about God. And so some of you, you never even started this yet. But start somewhere. Honestly, start. Lean into your distractions. Pray through your distractions. Some of you have this like very idealistic version of prayer. It's just like, I'm gonna silence myself. And when all the distractions are gone, I'm gonna pray. With undiagnosed ADHD, I will tell you, that does not work, baby. There is a thousand and one things that are in there in the first three seconds. I've realized that that's probably not gonna stop, so I better just keep praying. So I pray through all of them. All of my distractions, I just continue to pray through all of them. So God's just like, I don't know why you are talking about all of those things and what that squirrel is doing in the tree, but, but you're with me, so I guess we'll just spend some time together, right? 
Pray through your distractions. Pray through the awkwardness. Embrace the silence because God speaks so much more clearly and loudly to us in our silent places than we think. And we're going to do this as a church. The first and third Sundays of every month, which by the way, today was the first Sunday of the month. John and I forgot that part. And some of you showed up to pray and we weren't here. But you prayed because you don't need us to pray. So praise God, right? But the first and third Sunday of every month, we're going to meet downstairs for 45 minutes and we're just going to pray. We're going to pray. So you don't have an excuse because you're already coming here, okay? And it's only two times a month. Not every week, not three times a week. It's two times a month. So that's what we're going to start doing. We're going to start that rhythm in two weeks from today. And we're going to really pray because this week as I sat with this text, I looked through the book of Acts and every single time that God shows up and does something crazy in the book of Acts, guess what it's in response to? The church praying. The church getting together and praying. It's individual and corporate prayer that releases the kingdom power that Jesus came to bring. So we're gonna start now. I'm gonna pray for us to that end, but I encourage you to start now. Pray now. Quietly, silently, whatever it is, we're just gonna take a few minutes before we jump into worship and respond to this. Let's all just take a minute and pray, and then I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you that the prerequisite for prayer isn't having all our theology figured out or having certainty or having all of our questions answered, but that it's conversation with you, that it's practice dependence on you. I pray for us as a church, regardless of where we are with you, Jesus, whether we're following you yet or in the process of figuring that out or have been following you for many years, I pray that you would reignite in us just a desperation for you, an honest, humble confession that we need you and that that would show up in lives of prayerfulness. That you just give us confidence as we begin to pray, as we begin to make this a daily practice as we walk through our daily lives that we would invite you into the little things and the big things. And that you would make much of yourself in that. And to even hear at the beginning of service all of the followers of you, Jesus, around the globe who don't have any of the comforts and privileges that we have that are literally losing their lives for your name. That as we stand with them, we know that these prayers that we pray for them are not in vain. That you are a God who hears prayer and answers prayer. And we as a church, we wanna take a posture of humility and invite you to be strong invite you to be big here in our lives, that Montreal, the whole West Island, every borough we find ourselves in would be transformed by your grace. 
that you would turn hearts to, to you, that you would change minds for you, and that we would be a part of that, just a small part of that. Give us boldness, give us confidence, give us trust that we too would come to you with a posture and say that we believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. We lay that down at your feet and ask that you empower us for your glory and for our good. We ask these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.